Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 569 with my guest, Dr. Jessica Zucker. Uh, this episode was originally aired in, uh, I believe, 2012. Yeah, 2012. And uh, as I'll mention in the beginning of this episode, uh, I was very nervous about putting it up, but I decided to put it up um, after last week's episode. Um, last week's episode was also a best of, and I began to kind of, in that episode, discover how sick my relationship with my mom was and um, uh, how unhealthy it was. And this episode that I'm airing today was a breakthrough episode in my confronting the truth about my relationship with my mom and the creepy nature of things that were done to me as a as a kid, um, and it's uh, it's uh, it's an uncomfortable thing, I think, as a lot of survivors know, to put it out there because we're so afraid of being judged and just being exposed. It's such a it's such a personal thing, but. It was a really important episode in my recovery, but it, it because it helped me give weight to what had happened to me, and um, I hope you I don't know enjoy it. <laughs> Isn't that the right word? Um, but anyways, we are sponsored uh, today as always by BetterHelp Online Counseling, and uh, I had a, a BetterHelp counselor for about three years named Donna, and she had to take a leave of absence to care for a critically ill uh, husband. And um, she encouraged me to um, continue with therapy and, and, and find somebody else. And I've waited about six months uh, to do it. I'm sure a lot of you know, it, it's, it can feel daunting sometimes, the idea of finding a new therapist, because you want somebody that's a really good fit. But I decided to, to plunge back in, and so, um, I found another counselor. We haven't had a session yet. I just uh, connected with her uh, this morning, and uh, she's she's licensed in California. Um, her name's Heidi. Uh, she's certified in EMDR and trained in trauma treatment. And uh, uh, I'm I'm hoping that it's a it's a good fit. So I'll let you I'll let you know how that goes. If you're interested in trying BetterHelp, go to BetterHelp.com/mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part, so they know you came from the podcast, and then uh, um, they'll match you with a counselor if they feel that they have one is good fit for you. And you can uh, get 10% off your first month of counseling. And without any further ado, here is that episode from 2012, uh, the first of three appearances with Dr. Jessica Zucker. Welcome to episode 58 with my guest, Dr. Jessica Zucker. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions to everyday compulsive negative thinking, feelings of dissatisfaction, disconnection, inadequacy, and that vague sinking feeling that the world is passing us by. You give us an hour, we'll give you a hot ladle of awkward and icky. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional counseling. Think of it less as the doctor's office and more of a waiting room that hopefully doesn't suck. Uh, before we get to the interview with uh, with Dr. Zucker, um, 
a couple of notes. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, we've got a new um, survey up on there about uh, babysitters and boys, um, which is a, actually a subject that we, we, we cover on the, the podcast today. Uh, today's podcast is, is um, it's kind of, it's very interesting. It's, uh, I'm very anxious about putting it up for, for many different reasons. Um, that we, we cover a bunch of different stuff. Um, we cover uh, questions that people have about uh, therapists, um, and Dr. Zucker helps answer a lot of those those questions. Um, the pitfalls of finding a therapist, tips for finding a good one, um, what to look for in a therapist. Um, we talk to her about her uh, upcoming book where she uh, works with uh, uh women who were or are currently in pornography and talking about their sexuality and their childhoods and stuff like that. Uh, we answer a letter um, from a woman um, who experienced severe postpartum depression, and that is one of uh, Dr. Zucker's uh, areas of expertise, so we get some good insight into that and how women can find different uh, different ways uh, when they're feeling stressed out as, as mothers to, uh, to um, get a little bit more peace in their lives. And then um, the interview turns to, um, uh, I don't know how to explain this, me, I guess. It turns, um, I, I don't want to give the whole thing away, but I get some, some uh, emails from listeners who say, when are we going to hear your story? And they want to know more about it. Well, if you're interested in that, this is definitely an episode you want to listen to all the way through. Um, I wasn't uh, quite prepared to to talk about it. I had a feeling it might come up, um, but it was a really these last ten days have been really um, painful, and in many ways, um, ultimately good but really, really scary, and I'm feeling very nervous right now about putting this um, that portion of the episode up. I go back and forth and back and forth, but my instinct kind of tells me that I should put it up, so I'm putting it up, and I really hope, uh, I, hope I don't regret it. Um, I think that's it for the... Oh, please sign up for the newsletter. Um, the uh, there's a link to it on the website and um, what was the other thing I wanted you to say oh take the surveys please take the surveys check out the form check out all the stuff that there is on the uh, on the website oh I know what I wanted to say our soldier that we are we're taking up a collection to fly in Bert uh, the soldier um, we have raised enough money we got about four hundred dollars from uh, from listeners and that should uh, cover his uh, hotel and his airfare, and I want to thank Randall and Sean Kathleen who are helping with uh, the airfare and the hotel. So, And if we wind up having more money left over than, than we use, we'll um, maybe put it aside in a little fund for the, the next person that we uh, decide to, to fly in. And hopefully that's okay with you guys that, uh, that donated um, money. If it's not, email me, and uh, I'll send you your PayPal donation back. Um, all right. Let's kick it off with a um, survey respondent. This guy's name is Matt, and this is from the uh, Shame and Secrets survey. Uh, Matt's straight. He's in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, has never been sexually abused, 
Deepest, darkest thoughts? Whenever I'm in public, I have homicidal fantasies about complete strangers, pushing people into traffic, slamming their heads into a brick wall, etc. I'm a very gentle person, never ever been in a fist fight, but I can't help but think about what I could do to another person's life. Uh, what are your sexual fantasies that are most powerful to you? Um, being tied up, tortured, and taken advantage of. Um, would you ever tell a partner or close friend this? Uh, he writes, no, I think she would freak out. Uh, what are your deepest, darkest secrets? Things you have done or things that have been done to you? He writes, uh, when a kid at my high school died, I pretended to be very close to him despite not knowing him, making up stories and spending the day with grief counselors just to get out of a math test. Um, do these secrets and thoughts generate a particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, no, and that's what bothers me even more. I could not care less. Everybody yeah. I know is bizarrely, beautifully fucked up in some weird way. I couldn't stand you in the audition. I couldn't stand yeah. you. Yes, yeah. awful. Yeah. I was drunk. And I learned that I could solve my problems. And said. Through violence, since I couldn't communicate. Lonely? Yes. I'm afraid that my genitalia is ugly. That's hurtful. And what was your role in the robbery? I mean, you never knew what you were going home to. I had a jar that had teeth in it. I was a wreck. Other people's teeth? Yeah. <laughs> I'm here with... Uh, Dr. Jessica Zucker. She's a uh, clinical psychologist specializing in women's health with a focus on perinatal and postpartum mood disorders, transitions in motherhood, and early parent-child attachment. She she earned her master's degree at uh, New York University in public health with a focus on international reproductive issues, and that led to uh, working for the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, After several years of international public health work focused on maternal issues, Dr. Zucker pursued a master's degree in psychology and human development at Harvard University. Never heard of that. Is that a good school? (laughs) Uh, With the aim of uh, shifting her work from a global perspective to uh, a more interpersonal focus. Uh, In her clinical practice, she merges her expertise in reproductive health and postpartum psychology. Uh, Dr. Zucker's research on female identity development came to fruition in her award-winning dissertation while completing her PhD in clinical psychology. She's a published writer and a contributor to the Huffington Post and PBS's This Emotional Life. Uh, she's currently working on her first book about mother-daughter relationships and issues surrounding the body. Do women have issues about bodies in this country? They don't. Yeah, it's really I think that's going to be a waste. They all feel so great about themselves. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Well, that's going straight to the bargain bin. <laughs> Thank you so much for for being willing to 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 come on and and do this. I was. Uh, um, the way I found uh, Jessica, is okay if I call you uh, of Jessica? Course, um, the way I found Jessica was um, uh, I had been sending emails out to um, therapists. Like uh, occasionally I'll get an email from a therapist saying, I like the show. I think it's helpful. I've, you know, suggested it to patients or things like that. And so I always write him back and say, Oh, thank you. I'm very flattered. Would you ever be interested in, in being interviewed? And um, some of them are, are, interested in coming on in the future they got too much going on right now but i noticed you were following me on twitter and that you were local so i uh asked you if you would if you'd be willing to come do this and and you said yes and uh i was very excited and and, and am very excited so thank you i'm so happy to participate this is such a great forum so helpful for people thanks thanks um so I'm wondering where the where the best place to start is. We, Jessica and I were talking before we started rolling. Um, I was just kind of letting her know what I'm going through right now, and letting her know that if if certain topics come up, 
I might uh, I might get a little uh, emotional and and I didn't want to freak her out. And so then we started talking about what the issues were and, and stuff like that. Um, uh, Not much freaks me out. Okay. Well, that's that that's good to know. Um, but you know, this is our first time. Uh, meeting together and because you are not my therapist uh, i i i i don't want to make this um uh i don't want to make this the the paul hour although sure. i certainly do want to deal with some of the stuff that i i am alluding to um if not at some point today someplace further further down the road basically yeah. i want to get your advice for free I'm exactly cheap. yeah i'm happy to just give it all away for yeah. free yeah but i mean you know your story i'm sure is relatable to so many different people um depending on what we're talking about so yeah. feel free to use it as a therapy hour thank you that's <laughs> that's really nice and uh, and generous of you um let's start with uh an, an email that I got from a, a listener who is looking for a therapist and she wants to know this, this, this woman was, um, uh, turned off whenever a therapist of hers would share a personal experience. Mm. She found that to be, uh, a real turnoff and, and selfish. Mm -hmm. Uh, is there a fine line between what is helpful and what is unacceptable in a therapist sharing anything? part of their life. I think so. I mean, and again, though, it's incredibly individual what people are looking for in a therapist. So it's sort of hard to generalize. But yeah, I mean, when a therapist is kind of a little too generous um, in reflecting on their own experience with a, with a patient or a client, uh, it can really be a turnoff. But for other people, they want to feel that the therapist can relate or they want to feel that the therapist is accessible. Um, so again, it's, it's, I would just follow your gut feeling. Mm -hmm. If it feels like way too much information, then it is. What if they share what they think are good quick pick numbers for Lotto? <laughs> then go with it. Take it to the it. closest 7-Eleven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I go to see psychics, so that's why I, <laughs> that's why I mentioned that. Um, what, if, if somebody's going to look for a therapist, what are some, positive signs in, mm. in in looking for a therapist at that at that first meeting with a with a I usually tell people who come to see me I mean it can be as specific as feeling comfortable in the space so I mean when you know people come to the first appointment with a lot of feeling um, whether they're going through a crisis or they've been to 10 therapists that were disappointing or they haven't been to therapy ever or it's been 10 years whatever um pulling up, parking, the building, the waiting room, all of that impacts the experience. So again, I would just really sort of uh, take note of how, you know, you're feeling in your body and your mind, your heart um, as you enter the space. And notice too, though, that some of, um, you know, one can feel really critical, let's say, of every uh, particular thing that's going on in the environment when they're feeling anxious about opening up. So the first um, appointment may not say everything about who the therapist is or what the potential relationship could be. Is it, would there be a number of visits you think you should give a therapist before you decide you're going to keep seeing them or not keep seeing them? I think that's a really important question. You know, again, for everybody it would be different, but I think... Would a half dozen be a, a fair... Oh, yeah. I mean... I, 
for me, I think um, I would trust my gut on the first or second or third visit. If it feels like there's a flow that you, there's a a resonance. I mean, again, someone could show up and just feel that the therapist wasn't sort of put together well enough or was too attractive for them or didn't like the way that they, you know, sipped their tea. I mean, it's so... um, how about if they do crossword puzzles? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I usually like to eat a big meal while people are talking and opening <laughs> up about their childhoods, but, you know, that's just me. Um, so if you're, if you're going to, uh, to see a therapist and you find that you've seen them a couple of times, yeah. but you're afraid to divulge certain Mm -hmm. pieces of information because I get quite a few emails from listeners who have no problem divulging that information to me, but they can't do it to their therapist, Mm. which is very flattering to, to me, but, um, Mm kind of makes me sad because it's like, you're paying this person. Um, what would you have any tips for them to break through that fear and share the secret that that they're willing to grow, go to their grave with. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a hugely important question. It's incredibly common that people don't share every single detail of their lives with their therapists. And you're right. I mean, for me, it's baffling because people are paying uh, a lot of money and and sort of investing their time and energy in this. So you would think, like, why would you not just share it all? But the intimacy and the risk that's being taken in sharing one's full self is enormous. What is the... I'm just going to move your mic yeah. closer a little bit. So, what, I mean... What, what yeah. is the risk when it's a therapist? What, I mean, what could go wrong? Well, the risk is being fully known. And when people don't have you know, positive experiences of emotional intimacy in their families or otherwise... They still, they want so badly. We all want so badly to be liked and loved. And so the, the deepest, darkest fear, I guess, is if we reveal all, the therapist too will judge us or the therapist too will see us in a light that we don't want to be seen in. Have you ever known of a therapist to outwardly judge their, their patient? I think that, well, um, I mean, if, if, outwardly judge, I mean, if they said, you know, I'm currently beating my wife and, and, you know, having sex with my kids, uh, Uh you know, I can see the therapist saying, uh, I have to call the authorities, you know, this is, but they would probably not even use judgmental terms. They would just say, you're very sick right now and you're a dangerous, you're dangerous, you're dangerous to people around you. But there's probably even a bit of compassion from that therapist because they know that that person is suffering suffering and if they're in therapy they're there because they don't want to be that person that's right i mean that's my hope um but again you know i think that people need to trust their gut if they do feel inherently judged on some level again it may be their own history that's informing that experience um you know but the therapist should be making should be thinking very critically about what's happening but in a compassionate way i mean you know that's the um the first time i went to um uh see a therapist it was a female therapist and she was uh, attractive and um it it was it was kind of hard for me to talk about um any sexual issues or fantasies that i i had mm-hmm. in my head because i you know yeah. i didn't want to appear unattractive you know sure. the, the, what i i want to try to uh, get across to the listener how not big of a deal your sexual fantasies are to a 
therapist. Can you talk about that? Well, but again, you know, I, it's, there's a lot to risk there. Right. So being fully known or sort of even just naming it yourself can be shaming, right? So again, you're paying top dollar, you're opting to be in therapy, you're wanting to explore your deepest, darkest stuff, but you have no idea if this person is secretly or, or outwardly judging you. Um, but again, you've got to just hope for the best and go for it. Right. right? And, and I guess my, my point was these, uh, these people are professionals and they've heard so much more mm-hmm. than you think that they've heard. Mm-hmm. They've studied cases in school. They've heard dozens, if not hundreds of people before you with similar things, probably a lot darker uh-huh. than, than what you're sharing. Yes. Yes. I mean, people have heard millions of stories and read so many cases, but also fantasy is fantasy. Yes. So the hope is that a therapist can really hold the breadth and depth of personal experience. So even something, again, that seems so dark to one person may not in any way phase the therapist at all. Right. Well, I can tell you that the the first time I kind of unloaded what I was thinking and feeling to my therapist, and she didn't bat an eye and told Mm -hmm. me how normal it was, the relief that I felt was indescribable. It was... I felt joy, really pure mm. joy for the first time in my life. You know, to have somebody look at me and say, oh, you're, you're not a bad person for what you think. You've been through some stuff, and this is your mind's way of coping with these things. Let's talk about what you've been through. That's yeah. what's important. You know, because a lot of people think that they're, they're going to go into therapy, and they're there for the ther- therapist to tell them whether or not they're a bad person. Or they're looking, they think that the therapist is going to dole out advice. But I always reiterate that the the main sort of thrust of therapy is to understand why we are who we are and just to make meaning of our lives. It's not exactly, it's not this sort of binary, am I good or bad or is this good or bad or my parents, you know, should I never speak to them again or should I talk to them every day? It's not necessarily about any of those kinds of constructs. Um, it's way deeper and more complicated and more interesting. And, and often I think that's why we need therapy is because it's so uh, gray and yeah. not clear cut. And, and as I've said many times on this podcast, that's the stuff that really fucks with us. And, <laughs> and if stuff is being, I don't know if perpetrated is too strong of a word, but if there are sick dynamics in our family of origin, mm-hmm. my hunch is the majority of them operate in that gray area so that the person perpetrating them won't be called on it. Yeah, I mean, ideally, if people are going to therapy consistently enough, that dynamic may eventually get played out within the therapeutic situation and therefore may be you know, healed in a very different way than it could have ever been with the original you know, family members. Can, can you be more specific about that? Meaning, can you give me an example? Meaning, so, you know, for example, you know, you could end up having a lot of feelings for your therapist, but again, it may be so informed by your previous um, caregiving experiences. And so hopefully, though, the therapist can really sort of show up for that 
hold it and explore it in a moment to moment basis. So we're not just looking back, but we're talking about the relationship that exists right here, right now. So going back to what you asked before, partly I think the reason why people are feeling like they can write to you and not tell their therapist is because it is not an ongoing relationship. They don't have to see me face to face. Exactly. It's in writing. Yeah. And so there's an anonymity about it that's very different than sitting together and having to have that experience of did the therapist just look away did she, does she now think i'm less attractive more attractive does she think i'm smart does she any right. of that yeah uh, well, i remember the the one session i had with my therapist and i can't remember how the subject came up i'm sure i i brought it up um but i basically said that i had feelings for her and, and, and you know and i said um you know, I made it clear I'm I'm not trying to pick you up. I'm just describing what what is happening right now because when right. you see a therapist of the opposite sex, um, or if you're gay of the uh, of the same sex, and you have never really experienced true intimacy mm-hmm. and and non judgmental compassion, when you experience for that first time, it is so intensely powerful. Um, it it it's transformative. It's transformative. And so she asked me to talk about it. And so um, I talked about it, and it was, it was embarrassing mm. and exciting at the same time because I was basically telling her what my fantasy was of what would play out with us. And she's just nodding, you know, and, and being extremely professional. But it felt, it felt good to get that out because it was mm. one of the first lessons to me that your shame can be shared with other people in a way that's that that's safe. Your your and can then evolve into something that does not include shame. Yes. And so did, there's a normalizing process. Like, why? How would you not feel that way in her presence? Right. And by the time I finished therapy with her, and you know, I hugged her and said goodbye, that feeling of wanting to to be with her sexually uh, was almost was almost gone. And it, and it felt it, it felt different. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like this these bubbles come up and out of you, and your therapist is there just kind of to guide them and pop them. Yeah, you know? yeah. And again, to join you in it, though, I think to sort of for you to feel less alone within the murkiness of the waters of life, it 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 is incredibly um, transformative and so intimate, like nothing else. So in, in, incredibly intimate, and I think it can really lay a good foundation for being intimate with your partner and your friends, mm-hmm. um, because for a lot of people, they've never experienced that safety. They grew up in households where where information and vulnerability were used as weapons, yes, not not things to bring you closer together. And when you mm. get into a support group or you make friends that you can share your fears and your shames with each other. That is a bond that is really, really special mm-hmm. and um, really therapeutic and, mm-hmm. and, and healing. There's nothing like getting off the phone uh, with a friend after just s- spilling your guts and knowing that they don't judge you because they've <laughs> right. spilled their guts to you before. Sure. Um, but a lot of people don't have that outlet, and so it just... No, it's true. And actually, something that you just made me think of, though, I mean, what I want to reiterate is that the consistency, though, of therapy is key. So people can, you know, 
I think that people want the relief sometimes of being in therapy and talking about their stuff and feeling felt, feeling understood, and then pop out. And they don't kind of, they can't integrate the benefit unless there is some sort of consistency because that's what all the research says, but also because when you just think about it in terms of going to the gym, for example, if you go once a month, what's the point of going? So there's something about the regularity and revisiting yourself and sitting with all these feelings, exploring different things with the same person that makes such a difference. Yeah, uh, I I believe that it's important to to go to therapy uh, when you feel like going to therapy, but it's even more important, in my opinion, to go to therapy when you don't feel like going to to therapy. Yeah, I often tell people, uh, you know, people say, "Well, how will I know when I'm done with therapy?" And I I sort of don't know what to say to that because I think that um, you know people think that once their problems are quote unquote solved that they don't need to be in a therapeutic relationship, but that might be a perfect time to continue. When you're feeling good, um, there's something wonderful about sort of just uh, having that flow with this person who knows all of the sadness in your life to also be able to share in the joys and the beauty. Yeah, because a lot of times, too, I think the joy and the beauty is so new, yes. you may not know that, uh, how to handle it. It, it may induce uh, a type anxiety. of uh, anxiety or even mania where uh-huh. you're oversharing how mm-hmm. exciting. Like when I first uh, <laughs> started taking meds and realized, oh, this is how normal people feel. Mm. Um, they don't feel gray and flat all the time. They smile naturally. I wanted to tell the world about it, and it was a kind of like a, almost a year of mania uh-huh. um, that uh, I probably should have been in therapy at, at, at that time because it was uh, its own kind of a, its own kind of addiction. That's interesting. So, what what do you mean though? Like you were so high and wanted to share kind of the the jubilance and yeah, inform yeah. people about how life can be better yeah but but it was it was coming from a place that was very uh kind of narcissistic Mm. because um i wanted everybody to know just how i couldn't stop talking about myself because i felt so good it was like this this spaceship had landed that was new to me and i just wanted (laughs) to, to to go hey have you ever seen this spaceship and it was i would imagine annoying uh to a a lot of people i mean from a therapeutic standpoint um if i put that hat on though it's it's very boyish i mean it's it's meaning like you would run to your mommy and say like look i just learned how to tie my shoe i mean there's something so beautiful about how excited you were and how and there's something heartbreaking about how um you know new it was for you to see that the world wasn't so gray and so blank yeah. and blah yeah. you know yeah and a lot of people that have never gotten out of that depression it's their normal they don't have anything to compare it to. Yeah. And, and that's why I think it's so important to, to go to, to therapy because you may not even know that you're mm-hmm. depressed. You may not even know that you're full mm-hmm. of shame or yeah. that your uh, relationship with your uh, one of your parents uh, or siblings was incredibly inappropriate mm-hmm. and damaging. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, you sort of just integrate that into your psyche and your personhood. And so how would you know if you're not around other types of people who are healthier or who can bring perspective? It's true. You stay loyal to what you know. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I'm struck by, and I have a feeling we'll be talking a lot about this in the, in the future, is this dynamic where um, 
where a child has, um, or a young adult has something happen to them that is very tragic, uh, uh, sexually, um, maybe not even necessarily very tragic, but something that is, um, where there is, uh, some, po- some type of power is being taken away from them. Mm. Um, and it then becomes um, a sexual fantasy yes. uh, to them that's very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, women being raped and having an orgasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, boys being given a bath beyond an appropriate age by a babysitter or their mother and they get an erection. Um, I mean, I've even read on message boards stories of... Uh, babysitters uh, masturbating young boys while giving them uh, a bath and thinking that it's okay because the boy enjoys it. And that that child then grows up with this deep, dark fantasy Mm -hmm. and they don't understand, they think that they're a bad person and that they don't realize that something was fused into their sexuality that had to do with power and that there's a coping mechanism there at, at, at work. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think partly why it becomes a fantasy is because then in the fantasy, oftentimes the person who was raped um, is saying yes. They can redo or undo what they couldn't, which, you know, that which they didn't have power over when they were so little. Right. Um, so, you know, in my dissertation research, I interviewed 20 women who work um, in pornography as actors, and some of them revealed that same kind of fantasy, that same story. It's like now they like to do on camera what was done to them at a time when they just had no power and no words. So when they have that yeah. fantasy then, can that ever be reversed can it ever be lessened can it be how do how do they well they're trying to work it through is that what you mean yes how does that happen and and what does the end result look like Mm -hmm. i mean i guess yeah it's it's a a tricky question but i think it can of course uh get worked through if it's being talked about in a consulting room so again back to the importance of not uh, a vivid of video <laughs> well there too you know right. it's you can do both um if but, you want to be in porn but you know as long as you're in therapy as well it's it's okay right but do you honestly think a, a, a person going into porn is ever going to get some type of healing or relief from that trauma i think that working in porn is not necessarily um, a form of abuse the way a lot of people see it. I think pornography is an incredibly um, important sort of psychological study in itself, and that's kind of why I took it on, and that's going to be uh, my book. But um, no, if they're only looking at their stuff or working out their stuff through the sexual experience on camera, no, th- that will not undo or redo any childhood traumas, no way. No, because they're not, I mean, to play something out doesn't heal you. It actually just prolongs the the complication, I think. Kind of feeds it. It does. Yeah. So we'd start with the why. Why now? What's been happening in your life? What happened in your early life? What? How do you feel about yourself, your body, sexually? And what about emotional intimacy? Because, you know, sex gets used in all these different interesting ways. 
Um, and a lot of it is really sort of masking um, so much of what's happening deep in the crevices of our hearts, mm-hmm. right? So if, if she's now wanting monogamy, why now? And I would like to get to know her in a deeper sort of way. Has she ever seen anything that looks remotely like what she's going after at this point? So with her relationship with her mother, was there, did they talk about sex? Was she honored as a, as a girl, as a developing woman? And same with her father, of course. And, and have you ever seen an instance where somebody who was in that profession is able to then enjoy monogamy and intimacy and not feel um, that damage? I haven't seen that because all of the women that I interviewed were, you know, sort of actively in porn. Although some of the women that I talked to considered themselves in monogamous relationships, but they look at the, you know, their day job as a job. I see. So that sex is what they do during the day. It's not a relationship and it doesn't mean anything to them. And they seem to report that their boyfriends felt okay about that. And, you know, this is just a couple of instances, of yeah. course, but that, that, that seems this is a horrible phrase, but that seems hard to swallow. <laughs> it, well, if you swallow it, it in a certain kind of glass, you get more money. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, that I, I couldn't imagine what that would be like, you know, to me, being an alcoholic, to, to me, that would be like uh you know, I'm an alcoholic, but uh, I have to go taste wine for a living mm. and and rinse it around in my mouth and 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 spit it out. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to drink it, but it would just seem like but, such a dangerous job. Well, but they, I don't think. I mean, none of the women I spoke with considered themselves sex addicts, so was it's not that same kind of analogy that you're using in terms of like a slippery slope into addiction. I see. I think it's this cut offness. Um, you know, that they, uh, my concern is that a lot of these women aren't sort of embodied. So they're using their bodies as objects, but they're not sort of aware of what's actually happening from the inside out. I gotcha. You know, uh, I guess I was just assuming that anybody that does porn, uh, there's sex addiction there. Oh no, definitely. I, I wouldn't, I don't think so. I mean, I think more consumers of porn, watchers of porn, the audience might be more sex addicted than the women that work within it. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the, your, your, uh, specialties is talking about, um, depression in women. And, uh, I forwarded a couple of emails to you. Um, is there one in particular that you would, uh, you would like to, uh, talk about? Yeah, I think it would be important to get into the one about postpartum depression. Um, if you do. Sure. Uh, this one is from uh, a woman named uh, Andrea, and she writes, um, uh, in every single episode, she, she talks about the podcast, and she says, in every single episode, there's at least one thing I can relate to. I just finishing, finished listening to the episode with Beth Littleford, which has compelled me to email you. I'm also a mom who went through postpartum depression. My story's a bit different from hers. My husband and I were married for five months when uh, we decided to pull the goalie. Oh, I remember this one because she's Canadian and try for a child. I thought it would uh, take a a while, Um, uh, but the first time we scored and got pregnant, 
I was devastated and in shock. My husband was over the moon. And nine months later, my beautiful baby daughter arrived. My first thought was, that's my baby. And second was, holy mother of fuck, did I just have a baby? Uh, no emotion, really, other than panic and shock. You would think as I was lying on an operating table, I might have clued into what was about to happen. Intellectually, I knew I'm not a dumb woman. Emotionally, I had no clue what was going on. I didn't love her. Actually, she felt like a foreign being from the first minute I saw her, but I knew I was responsible for her. I didn't sleep at all. I refused to hold her at first until my husband laid her on me. I was so desperate, I asked my mom to stay with me 24-7 in the hospital. If I would drift off for a minute, my first question was, is she still breathing okay? Well, did she stop at all? It was a fucking disaster. For five months, I was crazy. I should have been locked up. Um... Raging, slamming doors so hard they came off the hinges, throwing breakables from the third floor of our home to the main level just because I was frustrated. I threw food. I screamed. I physically shook with anger. My concentration was gone. I cried for no reason. I isolated myself. I hated my husband. I wanted to drink myself to death. Every night, I would look at a 40 ounce of vodka in our cupboard and talk myself in and out of getting blotto and taking as many Tylenol 3 as I could. I never slept more than one hour at a time in over five months. Everyone around me was so happy about this baby and would say, oh, you are just tired. Take a break. You need to get out with the baby. Walk the baby. You just need this and you just need that. Everything will get better at six weeks. Six weeks. Just wait. Uh, the day it was six weeks, I felt so shitty and betrayed because that was when I realized I was living my new normal and my old life would never be back. I was a mom. A mom. What the fuck have I done? What have I gotten myself into here? Fortunately, I live in Canada. Our community sends a nurse to your home to check on you 24 hours uh, after you get home to check out that all is good, etc. My, uh, my nurse uh, was Elaine. She called but was away. And did I need anything? I sobbed on the phone with I can't really with with her and she gave me all the emergency numbers and said she would be coming over in 2 days. Um she stayed all morning. Uh I saw her once a week for the first 6. She referred me to a PPD support postpartum depression support group. Um and uh the, those uh nurses came by to talk with me. All I wanted to do was sleep. They recommended I go and try it out. I told them I would go only after they offered free transportation, childcare, and snacks. Uh, I only had to commit to going three times. It was not a drop-in. They expected me there for a three-minute, uh, a minimum three weeks in a row. I went, sighed, ate cookies, was angry because I could barely stay awake and wanted to go home. I tried to listen to the others, but in my mind, I was telling myself, you do not belong here. These women are nuts. They are insane. Why the fuck was I here? I didn't want to go back and tried every way to get out of it, but in the end, it was a nice day and the treats were good, so what the hell. <laughs> this time I heard when the other women said hello. They remembered my name. One saved me a spot. Wait a minute. Am I not in a room with a bunch of self-absorbed, complaining egomaniacs? Then I listened. Everyone gets a turn to share. In most of what they talked about, I could relate to something, and I cried the whole time. It clicked. I need to be here. I declined to talk that time. The third week, I was looking forward to going. I forgot that I had decided to, to leave or stay after this week. They asked me first this time if I wanted to share. I spoke and I cried so much. I told them my thoughts of week one and week two and how uh, I felt so guilty and shameful. Five of the eight of us felt this, the same when they started. I went every week for 10 months. 
The PPD support group literally saved my life. I went to my doctor and got medical help and started meds, which made a huge difference. I began to love my child, and I fell in love with her. My smile came back. I laughed sometimes. I wasn't cured, but it was a great start. They set me up with a therapist when it was time to return to work. I still see her today, five years later. There's a lot more to my story, a lot. Um, I will break it down in points. Uh, I was raped at 16 when I was a virgin. I repressed this for 16 years. The accused are two boys from my neighborhood and went to my school. It was a horrible trauma that changed me from my core, but I told no one, no one. My father is an alcoholic. My mother suffers from mental illness. I trusted no one. I had a second baby who I love and adore with all my heart. Been through every type of treatment for severe depression, including major depressive episodes, social anxiety, and PTSD. Also, I now get intense, very serious, spontaneous migraines. Last year, I experienced a full-on mental, emotional, physical, intellectual breakdown. I could no longer work. My marriage was at a breaking point. I wanted to kill myself, but I couldn't because I couldn't leave my girls. This is a little sampling of one part of my story. I just thought I would share. In my journey to wellness, I've met so many people who have chosen not to have kids because of mental illness, and a lot of them regret that choice. Also, for anyone who is a parent and is overwhelmed, exhausted, tired of being sick and sick and tired, feels like life has been on pause, maybe lost themselves and don't know who they are, you are not alone. It is okay to talk about it. It is okay if your family doesn't understand. It is okay if your friends or spouse just think you are complaining. They don't understand. Get help. Contact local agencies to help with funding. Uh, in Ontario, Canada, anyone with a child under six is entitled to free therapy. I think she's just fucking rubbing it in right now. To us I Americans. know. I want to move there. What's going um, on? And uh, that, that, that's basically the, the, the gist of, of her, her letter. Um, she is brave. Brave and beautiful. And God, I, that. The courage and the experience that she's been through. I mean, look, one in four, one in five women experience some sort of postpartum mood disorder or the, the report, that's what's been reported. So of course people are under-reporting. Um, postpartum depression is serious. And unfortunately it's not taken seriously. Um, women are expected to be perfect. Women themselves want to be perfect. Uh, family members, friends, community, you know, TV, media, whatever, is telling us that it's supposed to be this glowing, joyous, wonderful um, transition in our lives. And for so many women, it's not. Um, and there's such a range of postpartum uh, mood disorders. You know, from her uh, email, it sounds like she was suffering in a major way. And I'm glad that she got on medication. And she's lucky that in that country, nurses come over. If only we had that here. Um, people cannot necessarily get through the experience without support, not meaning that they're necessarily going to hurt themselves, but the depression can just go on and on. As you know, I mean, depression in general is something that needs to be treated and taken seriously. What, what I liked too about her letter, um, was it highlights the need uh, sometimes to treat the the issue on more than one plane. Exactly. You, you know, for her, it was there was a chemical imbalance that needed to be treated with meds, but there was also an emotional uh, component where she needed to open up and talk about that stuff. Yeah, I mean the the thing that makes you know postpartum depression so different than depression 
there's this enormous expectation in your lap that you are now responsible for this human life. So you kind of can't be depressed too long and you feel so guilty about the depression. You feel anxious about the depression. And so, yeah, it's so multi-layered and multi-platformed because um, the guilt that comes along with feeling I can't imagine. shitty. I mean, because it's one thing to be depressed and not have a kid. You can maybe lay around or you can just kind of get through, maybe. Uh, but with a child that needs you. And everybody telling you how blessed you how are. How cute the baby is, how blessed you are, how, you know, how, how come you're not just skipping in the street. And so many so, women are feeling regretful and uh, talk about shame. And anxiety that I've got right. at least 18 more years of overwhelming <laughs> responsibility yeah. while I feel like I'm getting nothing back. That's got to be crushing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the sort of experience of one's own childhood tends to rush in, whether that takes place during pregnancy, during the actual birth experience, or post. It, it happens. And so people kind of don't have a choice um, at that point whether or not they look at their own childhood history. So oftentimes a pregnancy can be a trigger to... Completely. And in, in all different directions, in beautiful ways about their own, you know, their mom's tales about being pregnant with them. Hopefully some of those stories are wonderful. But to the, you know, to the other end of the spectrum as well. Um, you know, having memories of being young and under cared for, undernourished, neglected, abused, whatever the case may be. Yeah, the, uh, Teresa Strasser's uh, episode, uh, which is definitely one of the one of the favorites. Um, she she talks about um, after she had her baby um, and her mother was visiting that it triggered all her memories of being neglected as a child. And her mother was on top of it saying, we're not meant to be mothers. So she felt this intense anxiety that she was going to repeat the cycle mm. of it. And it made her want to die. Oh, it's so deep. The beauty is, again, if people reach out and get help and just say to themselves, you know what, I'm worth it. And I don't know what the hell is going on, but I need to find out. We will make mistakes as parents, of course, but the hope is that we make better ones. We make different ones and they're better informed. I mean, so at least by looking back at her own experience and sort of having her mom reignite the memory gives her then hopefully the opportunity to dive into it and, and rearrange things so that her child doesn't have that same experience. Yeah. My hope is too, that the, the people uh, listening to this know that it's it's incredibly common. Um, just because people aren't talking about it, it doesn't mean it's it's abnormal. Well, and I just I find it sort of befuddling because pe people are talking about it, but people aren't talking about it at all. It's sort of like people don't talk about miscarriage, people don't talk about infertility, people don't talk about reproductive you know technologies, but we are talking about it. People don't talk about the Kardashians. Oh wait, <laughs> they do. <laughs> <laughs> they do reality TV. Uh, so, what would are are there some warning signs that you might need to get help um, from once you're you're impregnated to you know mm -hmm. when the baby's in its first year? Mm -hmm. uh, any well, pre some predisposing factors that people should be aware of. You know, so if people let's say were abused um, in childhood, they may be 
uh, more uh, predisposed to depression if they have a history of PMS, um, a history of depression in the family, bipolar, um, you know, obviously if there are major struggles within the relationship going into having a child, it really sort of can weaken um, the environment uh, when the baby arrives. And so again, though, you know, the, the hormonal shifts plus sleep deprivation, that's just a mess for everybody. And then when she reported there that she slept, what I think she said an hour a day, there's something going on because, you know, it's of course within the range of normal to be worried that your child isn't breathing, is breathing, isn't rolling over, is rolling over, whatever the, um, sort of obsessive worries can keep you up at night, but to not sleep means something there's an agitated depression or agitated anxiety that's going on that really needs to be addressed. Uh, And like I said, you know, the the depression won't go away on its own. So some people may be able to talk it through in therapy and may not need meds, but the combo um, can, you know, can be really beneficial for some people. And I would imagine what makes it so confusing and difficult, too, is you don't know what is the natural stress of being a mom and what is your postpartum depression. That's right. When you feel like an alternate version of yourself and you don't experience at least, you know, some moments of reprieve or joy or the old you in a day um, and it goes on for days. So there's sort of this kind of... um, time period that's normal, quote unquote, normal postpartum blues, like three to four weeks, that's to be expected. You have no idea what's going on. Your body's changed. Your hormones are flying. You're not sleeping. So everybody is bound to feel pretty crazed during that initial period. And we, people start to, you know, therapists and, and psychiatrists become a little bit more concerned when, um, it goes past four weeks. So that's when you start to think, okay, am I still not sleeping? Am I still feeling like I regret this? Do I want to die? Do I wish my baby weren't, you know, wasn't here? These dark, shameful feelings and thoughts that people have, that, that's a good time to, to get help. Good, good. Um, I want to read another email uh, that I got from a, a, a woman named uh, Kay. And... Uh, she has a couple of questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, she writes, uh, my best friend is a mother of two going to college and taking care of both kids, a four-month-old and a four-year-old, mostly on her own while her husband works in the mountains doing uh, electrician work. She has started to have issues with anxiety after a lifetime without mental health problems. My question is, how does she find sanity when there is nearly zero time for herself, and how does she convince her husband to lift a finger to help her when he comes back tired from the mountains? Mm -hmm. Are the working class doomed to misery? Now, my answer might be right. Uh, I, I don't know if it's if it's on or not. But her, her husband's working in the mountains. Should he switch to moving and uh, working in rolling hills? <laughs> or in Laurel Canyon? Yeah, or Laurel Canyon. Um, hmm. What can she? Be, because one, you know, one of the things kind of in your uh, specialty is um, helping to find ways uh, for women to um, ease ease tension. Yeah. Can you can you talk about some ways that I mean, I think this brings up a really important point about resources. And so what I tell most of my patients is, you know, being resourced inside and out, huge, vital, 
foundational, amazing for your baby to experience you being present. The quality of the interaction is way more important than the quantity of time that you spend with your child. So if you're feeling good and grounded with your child two hours a day and the other day, you know, the other hours of the day you're off at work, um, but feeling fulfilled and happy to be away from your baby, great. So, but so it's okay to be happy to be away from your baby oh, as a it's, mom. It's incredibly important to know that the balance is um, key. I think that the pressure to be around your baby twenty four seven is remarkable. I mean, there's just no way that people can go from being childless to being with a child full time without feeling bored or anxious or overwhelmed or understimulated or whatever. But her, her email brings up a good point about class issues. Um, you know, so when I say resourced outside, what I meant was, you know, if you can have help so that you can even go on a walk by yourself or see a friend or whatever um, makes you feel sort of joyous or more like your old self, um, you know, money is sort of key in that regard. But of course, there's hopefully there's some family if they're helpful. Um, and if they're, if money is an issue and therapy doesn't feel affordable, there are always clinics or sliding scale institutes, hopefully in the area where she can be talking about these issues. What's the best way to try to find that if you're, if you're, uh, and, and, and even aside from, um, women's issues and pregnancy, I get so many emails from people that are in a horrible place, Mm -hmm. but they can't afford therapy. Yeah. What, what should they do? That's the thing I always tell people, you know, when they say, well, I can't afford to see you in your Beverly Hills, whatever, that's fine and totally understandable. And there, there are clinics everywhere. I mean, I, you know, I guess I haven't been to like Antarctica, so I don't know what's going on there therapeutically. Um, but there. It's good, but it's not heated, which is really <laughs> an oversight. Even in the offices? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's freezing. Um, Nobody talks beyond their time, though, which is nice. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it, here in L.A., there are places that slide down to $5 a session. So, How do you find them, though? I mean, I would say Google low-fee therapy in the name of your city or, okay. or, you know, therapy in the name of your city, and the clinics should come up or clinics in the name of your city. Okay. Yeah, definitely. But the word clinic and low fee would yeah, be a good. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good starting point. And hopefully you just ask around. I mean, you can ask your medical doctor, um, any other practitioners that work in the field, or hopefully friends or family mm-hmm. um, might know about these places. But there, there is no getting around um, therapy if people want it. It's there. That's good to know. Yeah. That's so, really, I mean, really I feel like know. sometimes people are using money as a way to sort of bypass it, but I, it, it's just not, that's not the case. And these clinics, oftentimes it's, you know, uh, excited students of, um, of the field who they'll be seeing it at this lower rate. And those people could be just as um, poised and passionate about the work um, as somebody who's seasoned. Yeah. It's really good to know. That's, I, I hope that gives some, some people out there hope that are, that are feeling like they're stuck and, the, and, and that there isn't. Because that's another dynamic that is just more gasoline on the mm. fire is than when you, when you feel hopeless. And, there, and there's, there, there's no reason to, uh, to feel that way. Well, I think another important point that she brings up in the, the previous email about sort of when family and friends contribute to your shame 
or making you feel that you shouldn't feel the way that you feel or deny um, that there's a problem going on. That is incredibly sad. Um, and so that becomes another hurdle uh, to get somebody into the therapeutic room. Yeah. Uh, her second question was, uh, how do I know I'm progressing in therapy? I feel like my therapist is complimenting me too much. Is this a real problem? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's interesting. I, want, I mean, if the compliments or the feedback, hopefully it's feedback, if it feels authentic and genuine, it may be that this patient, you know, has difficulty sort of taking in um, someone being loving or caring or noting their progress or their insightfulness. Um, what if the therapist is saying, who's a good girl? <laughs> is, that, is that inappropriate? That might be just a tad inappropriate. Who's my big girl? <laughs> who's got her big pants on? <laughs> oh... Uh, but I mean, I, I, yeah, it's so nebulous. I mean, how do we it's, know when we're progressing? I think it's about sort of sometimes when you feel the worst is when you're making the best progress. And sometimes when you feel the best, nothing's happening. I mean, it's, it, it's not an answerable question, really. It's just about sort of it's immeasurable. Um, and to know that it's a process, uh, I think like when people need to just put on their seatbelt and, and go into the ride with hopefully, uh, with their arms outstretched. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I think it's totally normal to be suspicious of compliments coming from a therapist sure. because I felt that way when my therapist would say, um, you know, you're too hard on yourself. Um, you know, is that a compliment? Um, well, because what she was saying was, don't be so hard. on yes, yourself. You don't need you, to be. Yes. You don't need to be that, that, that these things that you think about yourself aren't true. Mm-hmm. And, it but was, that's a really important, um, again, comment on what she's observing you're doing to yourself. So you're sort of like wrapping your childhood back around on yourself and doing to yourself probably what a parent has done. Yeah. And so she's saying, what's the big deal here? Right. Why are you now hurting yourself in ways you don't need to anymore? Um, one of the things that, that my mom used to do um, to me, one of the sick dynamics is she would build me up, usually in a way that crossed some type of um, boundary. You know, her her the words which she would use towards me would be kind of of a, a of a sexual nature. You know, and or the touching would be kind of of a sexual nature, touching my ass or, you know, calling me, you know, so damn cute or handsome or whatever. And she would say all these compliments to me. And, and then at the end, she would squeeze my face and through gritted teeth and a smile, she would say, but you're rotten. You're rotten to the core. That's a recipe for... Um, lifelong confusion, I would say. Yeah, so it's hard. Yeah. To, it's hard to take a compliment when. Yeah, well, when you think then that something evil is about to happen. Yeah. Right. So that with you know when when good is paired with bad and bad is paired with good, you never know what, who to trust. You can't trust yourself. Um, that's incredibly intense. Well, then maybe now would be a good time for for me to bring up what we had started talking about 
earlier. Mm. Um, before we were rolling, um, I was telling Jessica that depending on what questions we answered and what emails um, we talked about, I might get a little bit emotional. And, and because this is our first time meeting and talking, I didn't want to freak you out. And I didn't want you to think, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? And you assured me that that that, that was okay. And I said that I'd had this kind of breakthrough, um, very painful breakthrough about seven or eight days ago when I was finally able to really call what my mom did to me um, sexually abusive and emotionally abusive and 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 incestuous you know Mm. there was never there was never any um actual sex between us you know there was never any you know manipulating of genitalia Genitalia. or anything like that Mm -hmm. but there was an onslaught a constant onslaught of her trying to violate boundaries you know barging into the bathroom when i was in there um taking my temperature rectally until I was eight years old. Um, uh, when I was 12, and I've shared this before, you know, finding a reason to, to give me a bath that um, seemed unnecessary and made me want to put a bathing suit on, but I didn't, and then got excited and felt dirty about it. Um, and thought it was my fault and thought I was bad. And as I look back at all these things mm. throughout my life, and there's a lot more I, I, I could list, uh, you know, her, her calling me on the phone, you know, as an adult and saying, hello, Mr. Gilmartin, this is Mrs. Gilmartin, you know, grabbing my ass until I made her stop when I was um, 24 years old and the therapist pointed out that it was, it was inappropriate. Um, I... I looked at this fantasy that I had always had as a, as a child um, being on the playground and an older girl coming up and comforting me and me just being able to wrap my arms around her and cry. Mm. And I, it was literally the strongest impulse I had as a child. Um, and I never knew what it was about. You know, as I got into therapy, I realized, oh, you know, it was me wanting to be mothered, me wanting to have a mother. But I, could ne- I never knew what the crying exactly was about and what it was that I would want to say. Mm. And after I was able to, to say last week, um, after consulting a lot of friends, uh, especially female friends, especially mothers, who pointed out to me that that was not appropriate, what she did. That was... No. Um, she was using you and exploiting you. And so I was, I went to my wife and I asked for a hug and I just started crying and the words came out. I didn't deserve it. She tricked me. She used me. Yes. And it really hurts. And I cried probably the most intense tears I ever have ever cried. Now here's the fucked up part is my brain keeps going mm-hmm. back and forth telling me I'm exaggerating. Yes. I'm making course. it up. Yes. I'm I'm going to hurt my mom if I don't go back and help her move into her retirement home in 5 days. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let my brother down. He's going to have to do it. I mean, she's got movers, but you know, mm-hmm. I had planned this trip before I had this kind of yeah. this breakdown last week. Well, the timing then seems um, uncanny then. 
Right. I guess I never thought about that. Yeah, there's something important there. So, what would you... I know you're going to say it's okay for me to not go back home. <laughs> I would say even more strongly than that. And again, because I'm not your therapist, I can, I'm saying it in this particular way. I don't know if I would say it like this in a therapy situation, but I would say if you had a son, how would you, how would you help protect him from a woman like this or from uh, engaging any further with somebody like this and treat yourself then in that way. The problem is that we become adults and we don't know how to kind of, I guess, quote unquote, parent ourselves, whatever that means. You know, it's like, why walk into the lion's den if you now know better? Yes, of course, this, all this loyalty stuff that you brought up is huge. Um, and it's it, it can feel nearly impossible for us to change some of the circuitry that we're so used to. Oh, but if I don't, but she will die, but he will be disappointed. And, and then what? You'll be the healthier for it. And then you'll have to sit with the feelings of maybe disappointing somebody and the simultaneous relief that you don't have more scarring because you didn't put yourself in that situation. The other, the other question I have is, how do I deal with her wanting, like I couldn't, right now, I couldn't be in the same room with her. Every time I, my entire life, whenever I've hugged her, I've felt like she's sucking energy out of me. I, I want to cover my genitals. I, I, I get nothing out of it. I get nothing out of my relationship with her. It's. It, it just feels like any time mm. I'm around her, it's strictly for her. When I leave her apartment or my shoulders slump and I feel like I've just dropped a, a, a weight, you know, I can't, I can't wait to get out of there. Mm. Um, how do I continue? What do I do? Do I, do I cut her off? Do mm. I send her a letter? What do I do the next time she calls and I can't bear to be on the phone? Mm -hmm. Now, here's the thing about about my mom. She will deny things happened yes. that don't even matter. Like yep. I had some fillings replaced in my 20s and it came up in a conversation and she said, no, you didn't. Mm. And I was like, mom, I think I know. I was there. And she got into a 10-minute argument about with me about it telling me that it never happened. Mm -hmm. Right. So she rewrites history to serve her. And the reason why you feel so drained is because you are just being used as an object. You're not seen for who you are. And so what I would recommend, I guess, you know, in moving forward, answering your questions, again, if you're trying to be the sort of the most whole you or the most authentic you or the most integrated you right now at this age as a man um, in a marriage, you know, I would have, you know, very different boundaries than you've ever grown up around. So that, again, that's so hard though. How do you know what that means? And does it have to be black and white? Is it, oh, I cut her off? Well, you can if you want to. Um, what I would say very strongly, though, 
is she will never change. She's she's about to turn 84. Precisely. And she's still doing what she did then. And, and by the way, here's another... <laughs> Another gem. So the, the, well, the only thing, though, on that note, though, it's the only thing, though, that you can then do in that situation is you're different. So when we expect people to change who can't, who won't, who aren't actively trying to, it's on us. So you have enough information now to do something different. And now it's, you know, it's really about how you navigate this new space that you've um, dipped into in I, your life. I don't know if I can bear the guilt mm -hmm. of cutting her off yeah yeah and, and i and, and, i understand and i that. don't know how to, i don't know how to handle that okay well i don't think i i think because that feels that doesn't feel again is it too extreme yeah to, it doesn't to, to feel authentic her? to you and so do i write her a letter to the next time she calls do, do i say you know you're never going to admit it but you sexualized me and i can't really talk anymore about this because it's uncomfortable. And no, if you ever because the, right then she will do it again. So that's what I was just trying to, you know, um, articulate a moment ago. Y you can't look to her to authenticate your experience. You know what happened. So the reason why you feel you're exaggerating is because she minimizes everything that you everything. say. So if in that conversation, at, you know, as a man, you're going to say to her, this is what you did to me when she's denying your cavities or your fillings. Right. She will surely deny. And that'll just hurt me again. Again and again and again. And you're making yourself vulnerable. Then you're that little boy in the bathtub. So what you do, I would, again, I'm just sort of strongly recommending this, but not as a therapist, but just as a, a psychological mind. I mean, I would say that what would be wiser for you is to simply treat her how you might treat somebody who hasn't treated you well and you're not look you're not going to look to someone like that to say oh you're right i haven't treated you well so i shouldn't even bring that, that i wouldn't stuff up. okay no because again it's too important to you yeah you can bring it up to everybody else who you've chosen as your family or you've chosen as your support team or chosen as whatever she is the perpetrator so when we keep going back to the perpetrator saying please admit it please take responsibility please make it right please say sorry or just playing it out again. You're being violated again when you look for acknowledgement. So I'm I'm not exaggerating when I the things that that happened to Why me. Why would you? Why would a kid do that? Just like an infant, a newborn doesn't starve themselves. But Kids I, are not necessarily bound to exaggerate as they get older. Now, look, I mean, we can't necessarily remember moment to moment things from when we're 3, when when we're, you know, in our late 30s or whatever looking back, but why would why would someone make something like that up? The general gist of the story. But, but why? what I want to know is: Am I being overly sensitive? Am I being there's over, no such thing overly dramatic? No, wanting to be the, the 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 victim. You were the victim. It's not about wanting. No, you're not being. The situation was dramatic. She's dramatic. You now feel dramatic in the retelling of your story because it's it's sickening to you. And so it's like, wait, how could this have really happened? I mean, I think, again, it, it's, it's so baffling for your heart, your head, your psyche, your body, everything to hold that, that you're like, oh, I must be making this up. You're not. You know you're not. I don't, I don't, 
you know, there's day, there's there a part day- of you that knows you're not because you're talking about it right now and you're so calmly talking about it and you cried about it with your wife and you had this, some kind of turning point moment or something where it sort of washed over you like, wow, as a boy, this is what happened in the context of my relationship with my mother. Wow. What does that mean? My, my, uh, when I said that, that stuff, when I cried with, with my wife, she said, I've been waiting for you to do this for 20 years because she has always tried to tell me that my mom has damaged me more than I will admit or Mm -hmm. feel. And I've always kind of taken my mom's side because um, I don't know why. I think it was because it was too painful to admit that my mom used me. And there's no other side. So it doesn't sound like you had a father around that was protecting you. He so no one was protecting there, nobody, you. you know. Right. So, I mean, you, there wasn't, you've had no protection. This is like, you know, major neglect. So there's no way to not sort of side with her because what else do you have? So this is huge for you in your own personal development in terms of like moving away potentially from this loyalty and saying, you know what? And again, you don't have to make some huge decision. Am I ever going to talk to her again? Am I ever going to say, no, right now I'm deciding, you know what? It's, it won't feel good for me to go see her right now. So, so, what, so I'm not going to right now. No, I, and I shared with my brother the, some of the, the stuff that happened to me and he was surprised, but he wasn't surprised. Mm-hmm. He knew that my mom could be weird. Mm-hmm. Um, Though even if he had said, you're a liar, da da da, denied your whole experience, it still means that you know what you know and you don't have to go. It feels really good to hear that. And I, and I've, and I've, what you said, you've said it differently than what other people have said. Other people have, told me that it was sexual abuse, um, that it's incest. Um, Why am I having trouble using those words to describe Mm -hmm. it? You know, I'm I'm comfortable calling it creepy and mm -hmm. saying that she was inappropriate because that I'm sure of. But why do I go back and forth on calling it that other thing? Is it an an, an exaggeration to call it... uh, sexual abuse or it's not an exaggeration but the reason why it's so hard for you to name it that is because it it concretizes it in a way that feels probably insufferable um and also more importantly maybe the reason why i you don't feel entitled to use those words is because again it wasn't black and white and i think that's what made it you know even more confusing and everything feels that much more confusing. Just like you said that she would touch you inappropriately, give you all of these compliments and then hold your face tightly and, and put you down. It's like, because, you know, it, it was so subtle and insidious and that's why it's harder to kind of hold on to and name in such a strong way. Oh, I was sexually abused. Um, right. Does that resonate? It, it it does. But I guess what I'm asking, what I'm trying to ask you is, yeah. do you consider what happened to me incest or sexual abuse? It sounds like it's on the spectrum of sexual abuse. Yes. If you felt sexualized. 
absolutely there's felt something centralized. abusive about that okay so again it's up to you how you sort of i guess name it frame it if you felt sexualized unsafe uncomfortable exploited that things that she was doing things that weren't age appropriate for you um then yeah confiding details of her marriage to me about you know well she was using you as a partner and see when parents do this with their children you know there's a lot of this with mothers and daughters where they use them as a friend um you know or a little playmate and there's something incredibly um, inappropriate and sad for the kid because, like you said, you don't really feel like you exist around her. Right. You don't really feel in any way seen by her. Yeah. So you weren't able to be a child. Ideally, childhood is, you know, you, you can have more freedom and safety and trust yeah. and vulnerability and playfulness. Yeah, there was never any any of that feeling. It's like any time the attention turned to warmth, there was no, it, it was just an onslaught of inappropriateness. That's, that is what the, 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 the warmth, that's the, the form that the, that the warmth and the mm. affection took. It was very rarely regulated in a motherly way. It was almost always, Mm-hmm. A lavishing of praise that had a sexual, you know, or or a physical mm-hmm. admiration undertone to it. Right, and again, the reason partly why you maybe responded with sexual excitement in the bathtub is because it's like, who, what kid doesn't want attention? And so it was such confused attention, and she doesn't have, you know, proper boundaries, and that's kind of why now you don't know. Should I go? Is it mean if I don't? It's like. Now you're sort of holding what she modeled for you, which is, again, completely understandable. How would you know any differently? But again, you know, you can now do, you can do something mm-hmm. differently. I'm not going. And it's kind of matter of fact, because you don't, you don't really owe her an explanation at all. I don't. I just say I, I'm not feeling well. I'm busy. Or whatever. I, I mean, whatever you feel most comfortable with. Again, it's more about you not being vulnerable again and again and again and again. She's not going to change. She will deny your lived experience. You're erased. That makes me feel good to hear that. It makes me feel really good to hear that. And I don't know why I have to hear it from so many different people. Because you've never heard it from her. Mothers are supposed to protect their children, and she did the opposite. So now you need it from everybody because you do need it mm-hmm. from everybody. Uh, I find myself really enjoying platonic warmth and affection from, from female friends. Is that okay? Is that healthy? Of course. Um, so I'm not trying to make them my mother. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know. And even if you are in certain ways, that's okay. There, that, You know, we only get one chance at having parents. And um, so that's the deal. 
Okay. And then if we're looking to fill certain things through friendships or other types of relationships, the therapy situation is an ideal place for that. You know, it will get reiterated that this person cannot be your mother. But if there's something warm and motherly and it's it's sort of um, giving you something that you long for, that's yeah. that's wonderful. Like on Saturday, I, I went over to... Um I have two friends who were actually guests on this uh, show. Um, Janet, uh, are we on time? Well, you, okay. It's, yeah, I'm, you I'm, have I've got about another 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. good. Um, on Saturday, I went over um, because I, I was, I just needed it. And I called my, my two friends, uh, Gray Delisle and, and Janet Varney, who are, uh, have been guests on this show and who I've, performed and done comedy with and just feel very very safe with and we have an easy time talking to each other and uh and i called janet up and i said i just i would love to hang out with you too because i just i need some love and um and we sat on her couch and each of them held my hand And they just gave me such warmth and affection. And they assured me that I wasn't exaggerating or making this up. And it just felt so good and it felt mm. so safe. You, f- you felt felt. So Dan Siegel, who's this wonderful um, psychiatrist here in Los Angeles who does um, a lot of stuff in this new field called interpersonal neurobiology. He talks about how, you know, the experience of feeling felt is, um, again, you know, transformative. And we need that. It's so awful when we don't get that from a parent. That's right. It's so awful. We need, I mean, I, I look at my son and I, I don't have to say it, but I just, even just a sigh at something that they do that's beautiful or a wow or I see you, that we need to feel mirrored in order to feel sane, really. Yeah. And again, it sounds like you were getting the opposite, the opposite, the opposite. And so right now, it's there's so much confusion around, well, what's truth then? Who am I then? Are my needs okay? How do I get them met? And it is, it's, you know, stunning that you have these um, deep relationships with people who can give you that and that you can be so vulnerable and real with them. It's really Well, that, that is because of support groups. Mm-hmm. That would not be possible without support groups. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I remember my, my, my uh, oh, this, this. I was on my way to a uh, support group meeting and my mom called, and she has been in a different support group for over 20 years, and there's certain work that you're supposed to do in these support groups that is elemental to healing, finding out about yourself. Mm-hmm. It's the entire point of going to the support group. She's never done the work in 20-plus in years there that she's go. been there. And I was telling her about my support group and the transformative effect having done the work is had on me. And one of the pieces of work that you do is you 
list a bunch of emotional stuff that's going on with you, things you're angry about, things you're ashamed about, uh, things that you've done sexually that weren't uh, cool, that made you feel dishonest or, or, or shameful. Mm. And, and she said, well, if I make that list out, can I read it to you? Mm. And I tell you, Jessica, my... Mm. I don't know which which went down first, my heart or my stomach. I know. Um, but here's the beauty of the reason I bring that up is I, w- I was on my way to my support group and I shared that and everybody first gasped and and I laughed after I said it and we all laughed together. Yeah. And that was so healing. Yeah. And it was so, and people came up to me and hugged me afterwards and were like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And all these people, you know, have had similar circumstances that are weird and icky. Um, But if I didn't go to support groups, I wouldn't, Mm. I wouldn't be able to to call my friends up and say, I'm hurting. I need love. Mm -hmm. Can I get some time this afternoon? I think I, I just want to point something out. Um, if, if we were in therapy together, I would I would sort of want you to pause there, though, to think about what it felt like to talk to her on your way there and to have that experience, that injurious experience on your way to your support group. So even though you are reaching out for support, you're also right before that dipping into more wounds. And so what does that mean to you, you know, how how incongruous does that feel or is that again because you're so used to that it feels like well that's just how it has to be I have to keep going back for more there or you know might it feel um enriching to do it differently I don't need to call her then what do I do when she calls me though well I think in given who she is uh it may be best for you to let her call you when she calls you and she can leave a message and you call back when you're in a space, you know, in a place within yourself where you feel you can talk or you want to talk. It's because then, because then it's up to you because I don't know, none of us can afford to be interrupted in the middle of our day. If we're feeling good or bad for that matter, um, and get sort of whacked, you don't you don't need to. I mean, you can keep doing that. We all can, but why would we? Cuz I don't know if I can live with the guilt of her not knowing why I'm not returning. She knows. Her phone call. You think you'll return the call eventually. She doesn't know who she is? You think she knows who she is? She knows who she is. You you can't perpetrate in that sort of way and not know I mean look she's mentally ill so she there's only a certain amount of insight that she probably has and she's not willing to reflect because again she may not even be capable of it but um, she'll lay on the guilt if you take space of course but again it's it's what you do with that that matters most Okay. thank you so much for that Thank I'm, you. I really appreciate Thank that. Thank you for sharing so much with me. This has been really wonderful. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. I'm glad I was... Um, I, I really needed to talk about that, but um, 
I was afraid that it was it was going to be too intense or um, put too much on you. You know, you said something before about like, am I being too sensitive? Or I, I don't. I'm very sort of. Um, I dissuade people from thinking about themselves in that way or thinking about it like that because sensitivity is an incredibly powerful and important um, way of being. And oftentimes when people are sensitive or termed sensitive, um, they're put down for it by the very people who made them become that way. And so I think people, it would be wonderful if we lived in a culture where people um, wore their sensitivity a little bit more proudly and enjoyed it and understood it rather than using it as yet another um, way of feeling badly about themselves. Yeah. Um, I think we might have time for one more um, email or question from, from a listener. Mm-hmm. Was there... Was Do you there- have any? Are people... Are people- writing to you now or are you so, talking about something that we've something um, that, that 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 you came through. Um, did you did you have any stuff pulled aside that that you wanted or just that one that i read at the top that 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 one kind of resonated with my background the most mm-hmm. um and i but I, the one that you brought up before about um the bathtub mm-hmm may you know be something okay that goes along well with what you're talking about about your own history now okay um there or is it about a bathtub yeah yeah it it, it was um i was telling jessica um i was looking at a forum that was that was talking about uh the relationships that that uh boys have with mothers and babysitters and what somebody had posed the question of what is appropriate um between a babysitter and a and a boy mm-hmm. and i was shocked at what some people consider appropriate um because the boy showed physical signs of enjoying it because mm-hmm. the, the boy got an erection and so i printed this one um thing out that this woman said um she was she was talking about how she had felt when she was um a teenage girl and she would uh bathe boys that that she was babysitting and she's she said um i guess it is true i enjoy seeing a boy nude and really love to see him get a boner sometimes when a girlfriend stays with us uh we talk about his penis and how it looks when I give boys baths, I do touch their penises and feel them in my hand. It is exciting getting to feel what they feel like and more so to know that they are a little embarrassed. Um, most of the boys I sit for like to be naked in front of my friends and I, so I never really saw it as arousal. Um, I mean, that's disturbing on so many levels, so I don't really know. Most of the people on the forum did not find that. They thought it was cute. They thought that it was... Uh, that boys are adorable, and because they show signs of enjoying it physically, that it's it's okay. Can you can you talk about why it's not okay if a if a boy is How aroused? Would that ever be okay? 
to, I mean, again, well, you know, if someone touched a little girl, she may also have a physical, you know, um, experience of pleasure. It's not as visible, um, but it could be felt. And that does not mean though, that she wants that it's the body's reaction to, um, being touched, to being stimulated, um, that any body would have, but again, to pair, pleasure with shame uh is going to leave an indelible mark on on these on these children and their experience of their bodies and sexuality in general and there's nothing cute about this i don't it's it's um it really kind of bummed me out when i was when i was looking through this thing because i was like man there are a lot a lot of men out there who mm-hmm. had stuff done to them that they don't even know that that may be a reason why they've got issues today. All they can remember is feeling excited about it. Torn. They felt excited and potentially you know, scared or ashamed that they felt excited or maybe someone hopefully had said to them, you know, no one can touch you. You know, maybe a parent tells the kid young, no one can touch your, you know, penis except for you or it would, however a parent might put it. Um, so they may even know that it's not okay, but they don't know how they, obviously they might be too young to know how to advocate for themselves or to say no, or they're excited. So they're not going to say no, but then they feel guilty. I mean, it's it, the mixture of, um, Emotions, And I think there's probably rage that goes on because I'm being exploited and I'm liking it. So one, one of the um, most kind of sexually conquering friends uh, that, that I know uh, was molested by his female babysitter and never um, doesn't think that really he, he won't call it molesting. He just calls it, you know, that he fooled around with this, uh, with this babysitter. And that was the first time mm-hmm. when I heard that, um, that was the first time I'd ever heard of that. And, and I'll be honest, my first inclination was, oh, that's kind of hot, mm-hmm. you know? How old was he? Uh, I think he was like around uh, 10, 11 uh-huh. years old. Oh, okay. She was a teenager. Um, well, that seems a little bit different, maybe. I mean, if she was... Uh, you know, it's none of it is okay necessarily, but maybe it did feel hot to him if she was like two years older or something. Right. And if, it depends on, I think, the the sort of age power differential. And but she was supposed to be caring for him. Right. Um, and it, but if he, yeah, it, that sounds a little more complicated. But you you thought it sounded hot. Yeah, the first time I heard of this was this was before I was in any kind of you know support group or um, mm. so it just. Uh, because I, I did have fantasies about um, teenage girls when I was 10, 11 years old. I wanted to see them without their clothes on. I loved looking at Playboy magazines. Mm-hmm. But um, it had never occurred to me that um, the misuse of power or there being a trick played on yeah. the child yes. fuses something to that yes. sexual experience that they carry with them 
that then is becomes uh, uh, triggering and maybe that's what and, and they need that mm-hmm. to get off later mm. in life or nothing makes them get off as intensely as recalling an experience like that or one similar where they can control the i think that's a really important point the the, the situations yeah. much, much like uh, as we've pointed out before women that that yes. have rape fantasies that have been raped yes um a way of going back and, and, and reliving that. But I, I think so many boys don't, they don't even understand that the reason their fantasies or their compulsions are about giving power away or taking power um, might be linked back to that event. I think that's a really important point that is so under-talked about in our culture because there is obviously such a focus on how um, girls are objectified or um, raped and abused and whatever, but but boys, we don't focus so much on yeah. what happens to them in that way. Well, I, I put a survey up on the website called uh, Babysitters and Boys, and uh, it, it it's for people, boys who've been babysat and girls who have babysat them, and it's an anonymous survey, and I would really love to get um, some some honesty about that because um, I have another hunch and and that is that this dynamic also feeds men growing up and objectifying women Mm -hmm. and then women being and when they get to be in that position of power having been objectified as a young girl Mm -hmm. it's very exciting to them to be able to control this boy's excitement and and i'm sure there you know i'm sure there is a healthy curiosity if some of them have never seen a penis before i i I don't think it would be wrong Mm -hmm. or bad for you know a girl to be bathing a a, you know a six-year-old boy and he gets an erection and to just say well you know that's we we don't touch that now that you know that's for you that this is private time for you exactly and and for her to even feel a little bit of excitement Uh doing that because it's new to her yes um but it's what she does with that. That's right. That's right. And again, this, I mean, we're talking really about you in, in, in the exploitation that you experienced with your mother and even now, and even in that phone call, you know, it's sort of like she wants to read you her list. She wants to touch your body. She wants you to come move her and you, you, you know that there will be some shameful experience while you're with her, you know, so it doesn't stop. Um, and so you're right. It's what people do with their position of power or, um, you know, their authority or hopefully parents are mentors and they're in awe of the children that they've created and they create, a safe, loving place for the person to flourish into whoever they're going to be, you know, and they feel um, a healthy attachment and a bond that continues. But when you throw exploitation into that mix, it just is, it goes haywire. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you so much for just being awesome. <laughs> just, <laughs> and you. Yeah. And um, you. You're, Thank you. you. Ha- the way you articulated um, some of this stuff, I know, is going to uh, help listeners. And um, so much of it helped me uh, oh, glad. T- today. Um, it It's nice to feel reassured. And, and I think one of the reasons why I wanted to say some of that stuff to you is because... Um, you're a, you're a professional, and 
anything that can quiet that voice in my head that keeps telling me that I'm making it up or I'm exaggerating or I'm trying to I'm just trying to be a victim for attention um mm. anything that kind of quiets that that voice feels good it feels good it makes me I'm so glad yeah thank you and uh send send me your uh your questions um and the next time we have Jessica on um which I'm hoping will be uh frequently and that would and, be great. and soon um yeah. We'll, uh, we'll try to answer them as, uh, as best we can. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. Many, many thanks to uh, Dr. Jessica Zucker for, um, for helping me. You know, as I listened to this episode back when I, when I edited it together, there, there were several times that I was really, um, I was moved to tears because um, it, it's so nice to find somebody who... A voice that you trust, that you know isn't lying to you to make you feel better. And um, I emailed her after the interview, and I just said thanks for thanks for helping to to lead me out of the dark um, because I trust your your authority and your and your compassion and your um, ability to articulate what it is that that I'm going through. Uh, I think she has probably since regretted. Um, <laughs> being on the show because I've e- emailed her a couple of times in a panic that that I'm still exaggerating what happened to me that that it's that I shouldn't be uh that I should still be going home um that I feel like a bad son and she said that that's normal to go back and forth and to blame yourself and one minute feel like no I'm doing the right thing and the next minute feel like a panic like oh my god what have what have i done and i've been going through a roller coaster of that the last couple of days and thank god she emailed me back and told me that 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 was normal but um that voice is not gone it is still there and um you know i how do i explain this the voice in my head that was telling me that i shouldn't put this up that it's that it's too exhibitionistic I thought, well, why do I want to put it up? And so I thought I would explain those those reasons. And um, you know, the biggest reason I wanted to put that part of it up was I want to be understood and I want to be heard. And that's the honest to God truth. I want the I want the audience. I want to feel like the audience knows me because I've now I'm hating myself but I'm going to leave this in um, I met a woman named Allie at the um, Walking the Room 100th episode um, in the middle of this meltdown that I've been having and she came up to me after the show, and I could just tell by her body language and by the excitement on her face and the way her voice caught that she's a god damn it that she's a fan of the show and I hugged her, and I felt like i I felt like this sounds really creepy, but I felt like I was hugging myself, I felt like. 
I feel like I am the listener and it felt so good to have somebody that knows me. I know my wife knows me. I know people in my support group know me. But there's something about people tuning in every week to listen to this show. And she expressed her gratitude for what I do on the show here. And it touched something really, really deep inside me. And it made me want to air this part of the show. Um, because she made me feel less alone. And ultimately, I think that's why this show works, if it does for people, is it's kind of a two-way, it's a two-way street. And I I opened up to this woman that I had only known 10 minutes, but I knew because she knew me from the show and she'd listened to all the episodes, I knew she, it was okay to do that. And that's why I want to, that's why I want to continue to talk about the stuff in my life that is hard to talk about. The other reason that I want to do that is I want people to see that this is a process and all its horrible fucking murkiness and ugliness and doubt so that maybe there's a template for when other people go through this. It's easier. It is really fucking hard call my mom a predator I'm not comfortable calling her a sexual predator I'm, I am comfortable calling her an emotional predator I'm comfortable saying that she was very sexually inappropriate and creepy and the weird thing is, is I don't hate her and I'm not even angry at her I'm just exhausted by her and I want to thank Dr. Zucker and Allie and my friends in the support groups and most of all, my wife, and Janet, and Gray, and you, the listeners, and the emailers who I've also corresponded with. There's about a half dozen out out there who know you. You know who you are. I want to thank you guys for doing the stuff for me that my mom never could, and reminding me that there is love out there in the world. There is compassion, but some people are so broken they can't give it. And it doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them sick people. And we need to have compassion for ourselves by how we expose ourselves to their sickness. So I hope that uh, I hope that makes sense. Um, I want to take it out with a survey from um, a listener named Annie. She's uh, straight. She's in her thirties. Uh, she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, she says, uh, have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? She says, yes, and I never reported it. Um, uh, she was a babysitter, um, and she felt something a little bit sexual. Um, she writes, whenever I would change the child, I would have immense thoughts of performing oral sex. I definitely did not think it was normal to have these thoughts, and though I never acted on them, I have found myself distancing uh, from male children in case I find myself overcome by them. Um, do these bring up any feelings? She writes, absolute disgust for thinking these thoughts, an incredible shame that these thoughts would even enter my head towards a child. Um, you know, this may sound weird, but Annie is a hero to me. 
because she didn't put that darkness inside herself. And she's kept it in there. She's fought that battle. You know, and some people lose that battle and kids get fucking hurt. But she didn't do that. And I think there are so many people outright out there right now fighting that battle in their head. And those of you that are that are fighting that and doing the right thing, I, I just have the utmost respect for you because you did not put those thoughts in your head. That uh, that was episode uh, fifty-eight originally from from twenty twelve, and um, if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.